Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. Devoid of heart, I called us soldiers, and the voice we raised was wind. This program features the work of 2020 writer Elena Ellis. In the first half, you'll hear her conversation with curator Anastasia René, recorded in the Jack Straw studio. Elena, welcome. Tell me what connects you most with your genre of writing. Yeah, so I write poetry. Um, I sometimes will say poetry and nonfiction because I love to hold forth in ways that could be called essay, but really, truly, it's just poetry. I work in poetry. I write in poetry. I sort of live, breathe poetry, and I can't even pretend to be a multi-genre <laughs> writer. Um, so what's your question? What draws me to it? Yeah, and I guess also because you've, you've basically said poetry, 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 <laughs> yeah. would you say that the genre picked you or did you pick it? It picked me. I didn't grow up in a household of poetry readers per se. I grew up in a household of readers. My parents are both teachers. Um, so words were important, but it wasn't as if I, you know, like I still am trying to catch up and read whoever I'm quote unquote supposed to read. Mm. Um, I didn't have a uh, any kind of formal education in poetry. Um, I had a an eighth grade boyfriend who gifted me Neruda's 20 Love Poems and a Song of Despair. Ooh, shout out to and the eighth grade boyfriend. Yes, Chris Walsmith. I still love and respect him. Um, he also gave me a book by William Stafford, who um, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and he was a long he was a longtime Oregon resident. And those were really my gateway into reading poetry. And then as a high schooler, I would sort of steal away to the library and read books of poetry. And I I remember as a teenager, like sort of feeling guilty that when I looked for a poem, I was looking for a reflection of myself. Like I had this sense I should be reading to connect with other people's experiences or to learn something outside of me. But I was just thinking about that actually earlier today and thinking like, of course I was doing that as a teenager. And of course, we're always doing that. And with poetry, if you're looking for a mirror in poetry, it's always going to be a fractured mirror and a complicated mirror. And it's not, it wasn't vanity. It was like really a spiritual searching and still is. Tell us about your Jack Straw project. I want the listeners to know what you've been working on. Yeah. So I'm working on a second book of poetry. My first book is going to be 10 years old pretty soon. Um, And so this one is a long time coming and is sort of coming out of a longer period of silence. And um, the book is inspired by the biblical book of Ezekiel, which is a text I sort of became obsessed with accidentally. Um, I'm not a biblical scholar. I am Jewish and it's a, you know, Jewish religious text, but I'm not a particularly religious person. So I, you know, that's sort of like the odd backdrop to the fact that this became my my text that I go to, you know, sometimes on a daily basis. Um, but you know how in the Pacific Northwest our mountains in truth they're always there, these huge volcanoes like Mount Rainier, <laughs> Mount Baker, but they come and go based on whether it's overcast or a clear day. 
True. More days than not, it's overcast here. And so it can look like there's like what volcano? Like there's no mountain to see. But then when it's clear, it's like this completely awe-inspiring, soul-shaking, beautiful, huge presence. Right? Every time. Yes. Even if it happened six times, yes. you're just still, yeah. And I'm so impacted by those mountains and always have been. And and for years, I was sort of grappling with what does it mean that I get so sad when I can't see them? Because the mountain doesn't go away when I can't see it. And so I, it just started to become this question sort of about faith. Like, if I believe in a power greater than me, do I or do I not believe that that power still exists when I can't see it? And so as I grappled with this, I was wanting to write about it, of course, and I couldn't find, I just hadn't found like the right metaphor. I remember uh, Roger Reeves came to town and I was like showing him the mountain or not the mountain. I can't remember which it was, but I like talking to him about like, I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it. Like I'm going to find the right way to write this down. And so one day what came to me was um, the image of the prayer shawl in the temple. Like in the, in the Jewish temple, there's a, it's called a talit. That's like a, it's a shawl worn over the shoulders or over the head in certain settings. And um, so I pictured the mountain with like the sky as a prayer shawl over the mountain. Mm. And as I went to sort of explore that image more, I was reading about the talit and um, there are fringes traditionally on the prayer shawl called tzitzit. And so I was looking up that word, that Hebrew word, um, biblical word, and reading that the word for the knots, this gets so, <laughs> this is not a short story, is it? But the word for the knots in the tassels is the same as the word in biblical Hebrew that's used in the book of Ezekiel to tell this story about an angel lifting Ezekiel up by a lock of his hair. So the lock of his hair is traced back in sort of word ancestry to the language used for the knot tied in the tassel that's on the prayer shawl. Wow. So that is how the book of Ezekiel opened up for me. as a sort of like etymological rabbit hole and then this image of an angel lifting somebody up by a lock of his hair. But it wasn't like that story isn't about punishment necessarily. It's like he gets lifted up to talk to God about something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I had now this image of the prayer shawl over the mountain, but I also had this really kind of intriguing, maybe erotic spiritual image of the angel tugging Ezekiel up by his hair. And that just opened up what's now been a years long pursuit of this, this now book length exploration and what I've been what I'm working on at Jack Straw to answer your question from a million years ago <laughs> is like I have now like pretty big body of work that comes from this and and really speaking to it as a book and looking at it as like how do all these poems live together what are they trying to say what's their what's their presence in the world going to be outside of my private relationship with Ezekiel wow with that <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear pieces from the work in progress and process. Yeah, I would love to read to you. And I, because I went on that long story, I'm definitely going to read um, the poem. This, I think, is the title poem from the book. And you will recognize a couple of the images. I'm only praying to believe what's true. What I want to explain about my religion is I only wish to pull a taut line between the mountain and my mouth. 
If I can't see the mountain, I pray to feel it instead, to eventually swallow it instead. I pray to be the mountain instead. When it's gray like this, the mountain wears the sky, a talit in the temple, absent body, never absent. When the angel touched Ezekiel, lifted him up by a lock of his hair, Ezekiel felt a great pain, and God was jealous, and God was stirred. When I say something like, touch me like that again and the mountain will let go of the sky, I mean only, look what you've done to the weather. It's raining again because you tugged the tassel. I'm wet again because it's raining. You talked a bit about the idea for the poems and the the rabbit hole of the etymology and that you have a Jewish background and all of that. What has been the most difficult part of writing this work? Mm. It's heavy work. Um, it's heavy subject matter. What I've been able to tap into through Ezekiel is a lot of complex layers of trauma. And the reason Ezekiel helped me get there is that in my reading, the God in that book of the Old Testament is incredibly abusive. That God has this personal relationship with Ezekiel that's very it actually, I just heard this term love bombing in reference to abusive, like emotionally abusive people. And I was like, oh, yeah, I think God does that in the book of Ezekiel where, you know, he he sort of like pours his attention and favor on Ezekiel only to literally lay him down in bondage to make an example of him. He tells him to lay down on his side and stay there for 360 days. I think it is um, denies him, you know, proper food. Um literally binds his hands. Um, he has him sort of act as his puppet, speak for him, move his hand to, you know, turn dead bodies into living zombie soldiers that go and kill more people on his behalf. I mean, he's, it, it, that God in that book to me is like the, not just like, because this is the Bible we're talking about, this is the archetype of an emotionally abusive, authoritative figure who in this case is is causing, you know, like our current president is a psychopath who also has the power to kill, you know, whole nations of people. Um, so that's why I say there's all these layers of trauma in it, because it's like I can connect to both the personal experience of being in a emotionally abusive relationship. Mm. I can connect that to childhood. I can connect that to relationships in my adult life. And then I can also very much connect it to our present political and cultural moment. What's been the biggest epiphany you've experienced based on your own work and your own personal writing journey, big or small? In the last few years, I am on this journey that is going to sound really cheesy at first of learning to love my own work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I it comes think that's cheesy at all. It it okay, thanks. Uh, <laughs> it's really beautiful, actually. Um, and it's coming in tandem with l- learning to love my own self. Surprise, surprise. 
um, but in a really real way, like not in a like, I love myself, like, or my work, you know, sort of publicly or pridefully, but in this way that's about, um, you know, how would you, like self-mothering, self-parenting, how would I love and appreciate a beloved outside of me? That's how I've learned to love and appreciate myself. And little by little, I'm doing that with my work too. So it's like, you know, what do the poems need? How do I protect them? Mm -hmm. How do I, you know, um, I guess I should pause and say a big part of this epiphany came from like being mentored as a performance poet at first. So that was my first real, you know, as an adult, my first real identity as a writer was as a performance poet. And in that space, I would write a new poem. I would sort of just edit it by ear. It would be done when it sounded right to my ear. I would step on a stage maybe the next day and read the poem. And then because we had this beautiful community, a supportive community, a hundred people or more would applaud for me after I read my new poem. And in a way, that was a really loving start to my career as a writer. But it also, um, once I started wanting to focus more on the page and how text performs on the page, I didn't necessarily have this built-in validation mechanism of an audience applauding for me right after I wrote a poem. And it's just, it's literally taken me years to be able to find a new relationship and a new, um, you know, now when I write a poem, I get to be quiet and listen, listen to what it says, applaud for it if it needs that, or give it, you know, space. What does it need to eat <laughs> like do we need some boundaries from each other mm -hmm. does it want does it need to be shared or does it need actually to like live deep in the bottom of my drawer with some crystals and gems on top of it for a while and so I also just in the last couple of years have started to do solo retreats to work on writing or go away for residencies and in those spaces in solitude is where I'm really finding enough room and quiet to get there if you could, what would you tell little Elena, little writing Elena or creative mm -hmm. Elena? What piece of information would you offer? Such a sweet question. It made me put my pouty lip out. <laughs> <laughs> Poor little Elena. I mean, actually, I think little Elena would be so thrilled to know. It never occurred to me that writer is a thing I could be forever. That writer and reader, a lot of my professional life is reading too, like that I could do those things forever. Also that I could be gay forever. <laughs> I mean, I just think there were these things inside me that were intrinsic to who I was, but I thought that I could shoo them away. And perhaps I could have just sort of lived a straight, life because of where I am on the spectrum of sexual orientation and I could have lived a straight life career wise too like I could have put away the creative part of me and worked I think I was really interested in social work and I think that can be really creative work as well and I could just could have had a different path but that would have involved like little Elena was really ready to put away big pieces of herself because that was like my role in the family was to do to sort of be mm -hmm. like hide away all these parts of you and then you get a lot of praise for being really easy and good so I think I would have been like sweetie like you know what's good about you is all this exciting mess like you're gonna do great things with that and like people are gonna more importantly you're gonna love you for you for doing those things and just that there's a way forward with that 
Now we'll hear a selection from Elena's live reading. We were never children. This was not the first time we said no with our mind, then yes with our dead living body. Not the first time we carried our dead self over the line. We lowered ourself down. We listened for the train and felt it long before it whistled. Said no with our mind, then yes with the corpse of all that bright blue. This was not the first time we made love in costume. Shame was on us then, is in us now. Room Song And isn't this what I have always wanted to be told? Open your mouth and eat what I give. What have I ever wanted more than to be your good boy? There are 16 houses in my heart, most of them on fire. What do I want more than to be your full-fed boy? A row of blazing houses in my heart have refused their final meal. Rebellious, you call them. But isn't my own mouth open? And aren't I your ready room? And this poem is um, the scene in the book of Ezekiel that some people think is so inspirational, I think is quite disturbing, where God empowers Ezekiel to raise a whole canyon full of skeletons up into a zombie army to go kill a neighboring nation to punish them for not, you know, not becoming monotheists. So this is me imagining Ezekiel looking back and um, admitting what he'd done. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. The worst thing I ever did was send an army full of ghost bones off to ambush. Youth, but no breath. Rage, but no song. Devoid of heart, I called us soldiers, and the voice we raised was wind. I want to say whatever mother made these zombies wasn't me, but it was my hand that shook the rattle till we stood and me who clothed us into skin. It wasn't my cruel cradle, but it was my sin. I'm going to read two more short poems. This one's basically pornography. I thought maybe it would give us some joy. In the <laughs> this is a scene in which God... Um, is describing this terrible woman who he gave all these gifts to and saved her from a life of prostitution. And then what did she do? She melted down all the gifts he gave her and made a dildo for herself. I'm not kidding. It says it in the Bible. So <laughs> this poem is called, And You Made for Yourself Idols. Yes, I took the gold and silver he had given me, Chain and charm, ornate vase, arm bracelet squeezed as if it were his fingers, left a mark, 
gold choker might as well have been a dog's heavy collar. Yes, I melted it all down. Richest joy I've ever heated myself by. Fire so bright I thought I saw my sister in the flames. Yes, I melted down his wealth to sculpt it new. Made it mine so it'd please me. Mine in a fever of pleasing myself. Not a phallus, but a whole arm shaped like my own power. Steeply shining mountain to our sky, a new sword for my sheath, so to speak. (laughs) I've never read that to people before. Thank you, Anastasia. Thank you, my cohort. Thanks for watching. Dune Song. At the crux of the mountain was the question of gifts, and who should get to keep them. I sat between a downward slope steep as no, and a climb I couldn't make except to crawl. I crawled on sand, I sweated in my hat. Though God believed I crawled for God, I crawled to know the height of my own rage. I carried myself, I cursed myself up, slid down, I called the day Adoption Day. I didn't give my gifts to God, I kept them all. I crawled, I stood, I fell, I kept them all. Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production, produced by Alyssa Keen and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Steve DeTori, Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Ayesha Ubiatilaka. Our theme music is by Sassy Black, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The 2020 curator of this program is Anastasia Renee, and the narrator for this podcast is Alyssa Keen. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Larry Lawrence for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>